Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the to New Books in History, the channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fiona Byers, and we are here today with Mary Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary University of London, and we're going to talk to her about her new book, City of Strangers, Making Lives in Medieval Europe, out this year, 2020, with Cambridge University Press. Hi, Mary. How are you today? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this. Wonderful. So you're wrapping up the semester? Yes, yes. Friday we finish. Oh, it's been... But it's the teaching. (laughs) Right, and and then to the marking. Uh, It's been an interesting fall, hasn't it, for all of us? It has been an interesting uh, eight, nine months, really, yes. Yeah, yeah, good news coming out of the UK, though, regarding the vaccinations, so we can, we have hopes. Yeah, light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. Yeah, I'm beginning to see it. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, So you've had a very, very productive career so far. I'm just going to hit a few of the highlights in order to help our listeners who might not be familiar with your CV. So your first book, Charity and Community in Medieval Cambridge, explored life uh, in the town of Cambridge through the lens of religious engagement, specifically with charity, people who contributed to and benefited from that charity. Then that focus on religious life continued with Corpus Christi, the Eucharist in late medieval culture, in which you center the Eucharist and use it to explore medieval life. Uh, The Eucharist is the center of another of your books, though in a decidedly different way, with Gentile Tales, the narrative assault on late medieval Jews, which looks at the development of the myth of the desecration of the host and its role in the growth of anti-Semitism in the late Middle Ages. And then in a subsequent book, Mother of God, A History of the Virgin Mary, you really get at the genesis of the Mary story, but that also there you explore the rationale behind her appeal all the way through the modern area. And then you've got a couple of works that are very popular. Um, but so all the way through, I see some, some themes that emerge, the centrality of religious practice, the way that affected so, so deeply affected all facets of life in the medieval period, the interaction between different demographic groups and a sort of micro-historical tendency, at least, um, are a few of the things I can come up, come up with right across, off the top of my head. And the book we talk about today, City of Strangers, Cities of Strangers, seems a natural next step for you in some ways, but also a bit of a divergent path as well. So my first question really is, is how, how this works, how this came into your story? How did you come to write this book? Thank you. That was a really interesting summary of my life. But uh, yes, no, you're absolutely right that uh, Cities of Strangers indeed is a summary of all my interests, but I would have never done it. I not in the summer of 2015, while on holiday with my family in Italy, uh, I received an email from uh, the University of Belfast from the trustees of a very, very distinguished uh, series of lectures, the Wiles Lectures, which I knew about because uh, I, I, I knew many books that had come out of that series. So this was founded in 1953, 
uh, in Queen's University, Belfast. And the idea was to bring scholars to Belfast uh, to, to speak about a subject that is both based on their learning, but also might attract wider audiences. And they really go to a lot of trouble to bring in people from Belfast, from the heritage community, from the business community, from schools and so on. So when I got the email that said, you know, uh, would you like to be the lecturer in 2017? I said, yes. But it was also that summer that we all remember well, where um, when, uh, you know, over a million refugees came to Europe from, um, from Syria. And we're literally, as I was sitting comfortably with my family in Tuscany, we were watching this, 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 this movement. And, and the doors that were closed and the doors that were open to them in different countries in Europe, of course, Germany being the most generous in that sense. And uh, so I had a project that I was planning. I was looking forward to a sabbatical. I, I already knew, as it were, what I'm doing next. But when this invitation came, I said, no, if, it's, if I'm to say yes, it has to be about something that is much more obviously of our moment, albeit seen by a different period because of the terms of these lectures, something that would really appeal to wider audiences. But also, I looked and I and I was reading and watching on the television and seeing this movement of people. And I said, actually, the period that I'd spent by then, I don't know, 30 years studying, I didn't really know. How did people, how, how did newcomers, how were newcomers really received in medieval cities? How would a process similar to this migration or or, or expulsion, or refugees, or people just moving about, movement of people. How is it accommodated in medieval society, the society I'm supposed to know quite a lot about? So I thought, actually, I'll put my plans aside, and for a number of years, I shall just concentrate and prepare these lectures asking that very question. And um, so I wrote and told them, and they were absolutely delighted, because it's such an interesting subject. And um, I, I began planning how I might uh, go about it. And in 2017, delivered those lectures in Belfast. And the great thing about this series of lectures is that they don't only invite you and your partner and sort of, you know, treat you very nicely for a whole week in Belfast, taking you out, you know, for sightseeing. And, you know, the lectures are always in, in the late afternoon, followed by a nice dinner and then discussion after dinner. So one has to really watch it and keep one's wits about one because at 9.30 there begins a discussion of the lecture of that afternoon. But they also do something rather clever, which is they also invite six people that you name, you the lecturer name, who are experts in the field, in order to to accompany the series as it were, to come to Belfast and to act as a sort of leaven, you know, to sort of help make the conversation both informantly critical, but also uh, liven it up from points of view that are well informed, so the audience get even more out of the lectures. And then, so after that experience, you can imagine, you go home with your lectures and you have to turn it into a book, but of course, you're a different person, having spent all those hours, having been asked, and, and the audiences were amazing. The audiences were just big, lively, from different disciplines, from different directions, from different generations. So all of that feedback that I got, uh, I took away with me then in 2018 and into 2019 to use in the process of uh, revising uh, the book and handing it in. And hence, it came out during the first lockdown in 2020. So it's again so interesting in a, in a, in a career where these sort of just things happen and they turn you around. And I am so, so happy this this all happened to me. I, I learned so much. 
And as you say, because I chose to look at cities, um, everything I'd ever looked at before, really, or most of what I'd looked at before, all these activities inspired by religious principles and so on, they usually happen in cities where there's wealth, where there's the preaching, where there's a lot more, just a lot more happening uh, in terms of religious life. So it all sort of, I was able to build on a lot that I knew, but boy, did I learn. I also learned a tremendous, tremendous amount. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your source material. So, um, I mean, these things that you had worked on before, but also maybe found or thought about, um, your primary sources include materials as diverse as hagiographies, law codes, and poetry. How did you, um, what kind of code switching did you have to do to put these in conversation? Um, and what, what did you find to be the most useful for you? So that's really interesting that you use the term code switching. Uh, I would I would maybe look at it through a slightly different term, which is the term of genre. That is, every genre of source, be it a chronicle, be it a last will and testament, uh, be it a sermon, any text evidence that has survived produced by these people in the past um, conforms, and this is also true, of course, of visual uh, expression, conforms to certain types of um, uh, a certain set of principles that defines that particular genre. So if you're writing hagiography, hey, the life of a saint, there's a particular pattern from beginning of a precocious life as a young person to an end and then canonization and so on. So every one, if you start a document, the document has its formulae, say if it's a legal document, uh, if it's a census or if it's a, if it's a tax list, it has its own structures. And any person doing research in a particular area has to get used to and understand the terms of those of those documents, because otherwise you don't really understand the principle along which uh, the producer of the document decides what to include and what to exclude. So that's sort of basic. And the more you've worked, the more you've had the chance to get into a variety of sources uh, uh, producing knowledge about the past. And I had worked on quite a few different genre in the past, but I still was learning because uh, my instinct was to start with regulations, with urban regulations about newcomers. So how does one do that? Uh, when we're talking about cities, one expects the most abundant material to be in the Italian cities. They developed earliest, they are the most numerous, they are precocious in their urban and civic development, and we're talking here, say, just the very late 11th, but definitely from the 12th century on, we have uh, texts of the regulations that these, um, that these cities created for themselves. And I say created for themselves because this was also important, because if the laws about newcomers were handed down by a monarch or an emperor, that wouldn't really tell me as much as I would want to know about what happened on the ground. The nice thing about the Italian urban communities was that um, there is a sort of element of deliberation, of consultation, of local government. So I had the feeling that if I would look at many, many, many uh, sort of uh, sets of statutes from Italian cities, then I would get the sense of what the ruling elites of those cities thought was appropriate in the way that they uh, received, um, received newcomers. Now, 
uh, that of course doesn't mean that this is these are the views that were pertained you know in every area of city life but at least i know that it's local government that had produced these sets of they're called statutes statutes for urban living and these have been that these have survived many of them have been uh, edited in very nice printed editions so i didn't have to go back to the manuscripts although i did in some cases and um, I was finding that in every set of statutes, it deals with everything from rubbish collection to uh, to judicial procedure to to uh, uh, to marriage to all areas of urban life. There were always a few clauses about how to treat foreigners, forensics or forensici in the Latin of the sources, and that was also regularly very very interesting. It was. Uh, it showed me that uh, they, they considered it, but they also considered it not not identically. But the principle was the same: that there is totally in this period an openness for people coming from elsewhere. Let's call it, and this elsewhere can be very very near from villages outside the city or further afield. But that there has to be a process of um, what we might call it probation, proving yourself, and also commitment. That is, you don't trust people who are passing through. You trust people to become good citizens of your city. If they've come, they've built a house, they commit, they bring their family, they work, and therefore they have a stake in in the city. And therefore, the expectation is that they are uh, trustworthy. And like in all these things, you know, how do you prove that you're trustworthy when nobody knows you? So there are all sorts of procedures by which trust might be will. And indeed, the more I worked in these issues, the issue of trust was absolutely crucial. And that's why it was so interesting also to find that although on the whole, these statutes, when they deal with this category of foreigner, foreign secus or forensis in their language, um, when they dealt with foreigner, on the whole, they they were thinking of uh, people from very near or less near, but arrangements for the settlement of Jews, for example, or for foreigners from very far away, let's call them eth- of different ethnicities, say coming from the south of France or, 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 or coming from the north of France and the low countries, those usually uh, entered agreements that were much more formal, that is an ad hoc agreement. So, so by starting this research in the what seemed to be the most obvious place, it, with with fairly autonomous urban communities that I have to sort it out for themselves, I thought immediately that I gained uh, uh, insight. Now, um, any document that's normative, that is to say, lays down the law in some sense, uh, is of course uh, a problematical in terms of giving you the sense of what. The reality was because people break the law, people ignore the law, people bribe themselves around the law, and so on. But so I was taking these statutes not to mean this was the reality, but rather as an opening into the mind of legislators and opinion formers and enforcers, that is, the people who ran towns in terms of how they perceived the remit of uh, entry into their into their communities. So that is therefore not to say that some people came in, but they didn't bring their family and some people came in and managed to settle because they had connections, but they really weren't very trustworthy. Of course, the, the, the breaking of the rules is, is forever uh, with us, but the rules nonetheless can tell us what the prevailing sets of concerns were and the solutions to them 
that these communities offered. And that's how the journey started. I want to talk a little bit about how you decided to organize this as well. Now, I can see it coming out of this lecture series, how you, you this turned into, kind of a, a lecture could turn into an independent essay. Um, uh, because each of the chapters is like this kind of self-contained meditation. Um, and I'm wondering if this essay format contributed to your decision to cover such a broad geographical and uh, chronological scope. That's really interesting. And I shall also divulge in a minute that actually uh, in turning it from lectures to a book, I following actually the advice of a, of a, of a great friend, but also my own, my own desire, uh, I actually turned around the order of the last two chapters and I'll explain why. So the first chapter is a set of reflections on what is a city? When were the cities? Why are the cities the right place to go and look for the sort of questions that I'm asking? How cities had different histories in different parts of Europe, because then, like now, it's a Europe of regions, it's a Europe of, of diversity, although vastly interconnected. I gave some background about the economic and demographic trends of the period. This is the beginning of our period, say around 1100, is a period of the most extraordinary transformation. Um, you know, there are lots of classic books in French with great titles like La Naissance de l'Europe or L'Essor de l'Europe. And, uh, and, and so in a way, uh, the Europe as we know it, the Europe of cities, universities, of, uh, of, of representative uh, um, uh, bodies, all these, as it were, quintessentially medieval uh, developments actually were created after the year 1000 and in the wake of a tremendous economic and demographic growth that stimulated the economy, that meant that, um, and it was uh, accompanied by a real rise in the productivity on land. So it was possible for Europeans, for some Europeans, maybe 10% of Europeans, to, to rely on the production of food of the remaining 90% and on networks of provision that were sufficiently robust and reliable most of the time so that they could get up and leave their land and come into the town come into the town to train, to produce, to make money, to engage not in the traditional uh, um, agrarian occupations of their families, but perhaps in something artisanal, something commercial, something military, something professional, you know, medicine or, or notarial practice or legal practice and so on. This doesn't usually happen in one generation, this transformation. But basically, we start getting a very, in all parts of Europe, uh, a little bit later in Central Europe, uh, um, Italy and the Low Countries are the most precocious in this sense, and uh, and so it's sufficiently you you can rely on the provision that you're sitting in the city. You're not going to starve, you know that. And, and moreover, a lot of people really enjoy this movement or, or develop um, careers around exactly the movement between town and countryside. Through trade, or through 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 um, you know accessing um, raw materials in the countryside, and then bringing them into cities like wool, for example, or, or wood to be worked in the workshops of cities. This coming and going. So, um, at the beginning, and I felt I had to give people the background of of how all this enables uh, urban life, and why urban life is always, by definition. A coming together of strangers. 
the people who, I mean, of course, there are in a city like Pisa, there were people going back to Roman times, but there are all these newcomers, and those newcomers are 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 strangers to each other until they learn the rules of the game, agree to trust each other, feel strongly enough that there are checks and balances that will keep them and their property and their families safe. And then ultimately something emerges, but we shouldn't be too fixed on this notion of local identity because new people are joining all the time and in a way also bringing their own ideas. Um, and very, very different people. I mentioned earlier the Jews of Europe. You know, the Jews were were, were invited, were, were summoned, were enticed into cities in this period of growth because they had certain types of expertise in financial services that that were absolutely necessary in this period. So that sort of first chapter sets the scene, and that's because it's a European phenomenon, albeit in a slightly different temporalities, I really felt people should own and know the background in order to judge what's happening. And I also uh, shared some of the prevailing ideas about what city life is, because as uh, these, these people were creating their civic communities or enhancing existing ones, they look to think about, you know, what is the good city? What is the good life in the city? What legal traditions are appropriate? And of course, they almost invariably go back to uh, to uh, uh, classical antecedents, to the traditions of, uh, for example, Aristotle on city life and on politics, to, to Roman law in terms of regulating property, uh, and of course, in some instances, also to ecclesiastical law, more on the sort of personal lives of uh, of urban people and out of all this heritage, uh, it's it's a combination of ideas about the city, the practice of the city, and the uh, and the aspirations around the city that all combine, mediated by a whole lot of people who have their hand both in running the place, collecting taxes, running courts of law, but also are thinking about it. So it's really interesting how this urban culture. There aren't the you know the people who legislating the people who think it's the same people. It's an extremely evolved, literate, book-bound uh, urban culture that we find in these places. Is that also true for, for the low countries and ultimately true for uh, urban elites um, throughout Europe? So, so that was the basis. And then I went on to, to a chapter on those uh, statutes, what they tell us. And then I honed in on two groups that I found very, very interesting because they are deeply embedded in urban life. Wherever you go, you find them. And yet they carry with them aspects of such deep difference. So I start, So the Jews were sort of, to me, obvious. I've written about Jews and Jews are so deeply interesting. And also we're coming to understand more and more through the work of a whole new generation and a very new orientation in Jewish history, how deeply embedded actually, how local Jews were local embedded to their communities. They were not foreigners, although they had aspects of difference. And then the most surprising of all, and the last bit that I wrote, because it occurred to me that when you think of foreigners in the city transitioning into um, going local, or maintaining their aspects of difference, say like the Jews do, or all sorts of merchant communities who very much kept their own language, their own sort of ethnic group and remained, as it were, noticeably different in cities for generations and out of choice. In a way, women are similarly utterly embedded, working, necessary, producing families. It's sort of totally obvious, isn't it? And yet to women, 
there attached certain markers of difference, say like Jews. They can work, but they can't control the workspace. They can live in the city, but they cannot aspire to office or authority. They are there, but they don't always feel safe, not in all parts of the city, and they need certain types of protection. And that to me was like, all of a sudden, you know, this tremendous sort of realization that, you know, women are in a way both local, but thought of as different and not totally fitting into the civic matrix in meaningful ways. And and that was in the series of lectures, that was the third, and then I finished with the Jews. But actually, I turned it around because I actually thought that by saying that about women, I was saying something about the human condition. Uh, if women can be made other in their own cities of birth and work, then our ability really to to exclude is really is really quite spectacular, and it's something that I wanted to leave the readers with. <laughs> That's the <laughs> wow! Wow! I got kind of uh, I, I was lulled into this sense. I've, you're such a wonderful storyteller and speaker. I was like just nodding along. I have questions, but I, I don't know what they are now. Um, so actually, I want to stop for a second on um, on women. I mean, you you talk about how women inhabit this kind of liminal space that always allows them to be or sometimes strangers in their own cities. Um, and, and how does that work? Like, exactly how are women put in this liminal position? And what are some ways that they're, they're, they're neither here nor there? Sure. I mean, I, I know totally why you're using the word liminal, and yet I don't even know if that's quite the right word. And I'm not suggesting that I have a better word. Because... Um, you know, if you read the correspondence between uh, the famous um, merchant from the city of Prato, uh, Francesco Dattini, and his wife Margherita, and he travels to Avignon a lot in southern France, and he, he just travels and comes and goes, and they correspond daily and sometimes more than daily, and all of this is a massive website, absolutely wonderful with the letters, and some of them have been published, some of them have been translated into English. Very interesting if people want to follow up. I mean, it is absolutely obvious that they are totally equal in this merchant household. Uh, he takes her advice, she tells him what she thinks, uh, they plan together, they plan you know, what to do when he returns, they together talk about their the work their workers their dependents their family this is if you read the letters this is a relationship of sort of respect with all the peculiarities obviously of a conjugal relationship but you wouldn't know that you know he has civic rights and she doesn't because nothing about those exchanges suggests that she's less able to partake in public life you wouldn't know that there's a disparity in terms of uh, property rights and and uh, a a a, um, a sort of hierarchy in terms of control of family assets. Uh, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't. You wouldn't think it at all sensible. You would say, "Wow, what a pair!" And so um, much work. And and this is true not only of merchants. It's even more true, or as true, when you go to artisans and craftspeople who were often organized in what we call guilds, which are sort of professional organizations that sort of monopolize and protect a particular 
craft, say uh, shoemakers or or or, or, or silversmiths, uh, and um, uh, they control the training, the price setting, and so on. So again, the members of the guild and voting members of the guild and decision taking members of the guild are all men, but. Everywhere within the statutes of those guilds, it is assumed, it is acknowledged that women are absolutely there in these what we might call workshop households. The women help train the apprentices. The women actually front, you know, they're front of shop, you know, while they're producing the back, they're in the front doing a lot of sort of the, the, the sales and front, you know, confronting the public. They also take over in most cases when the husband dies, that is, the craft master dies, if there's a minor son uh, who isn't ready yet to take over, but who will be one day, and then, of course, replace his mother as the head of the workshop, in, as the interim head of the workshop. And this interim can be years until a child matures. So, um, so there's a total recognition that women are absolutely part. They have the skill. They're trained. They're absolutely necessary for this process, both in life and after the death of their of their uh, partners. And yet, um, uh, when it comes to public life, authority, full rights over property, and of course, even the right to continue working, would be displaced by the I don't know, fourteen or sixteen year old son when he came of age. So, this is just extraordinary, but it was the system. It was absolutely the system. Now, people talk about, yes, but women had influence and they could, yeah, it's great to have soft power, but hard power is better. And in some occasions, more important than soft power in terms of determining people's lives. So this is not to say that every woman sat around and lamented the universal, practically universal traditions of patriarchy in the 14th century across the world. No, but it does mean it's, um, you know, they came across it all the time in every aspect of their lives. In a sense, it was no, it was so normalized. But yet, even in a system that normalizes certain forms of exclusion, it doesn't mean that people would not suffer from what, not a very elegant term, but, 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 a term we, we now use, which is microaggressions, of course, the constant coming across belittling and humiliating and frustrating and unfair characterizations of one's abilities and self. So they would go to a sermon and they would hear about Eve and what that means about women. They would go to the market, but they couldn't sign a certain types of um, uh, documents. They couldn't engage in credit in the same way. A whole lot of of restrictions, which um, actually a settled Jewish male wouldn't suffer from. People, uh, there are restrictions, but even, but but in these areas, less uh, women were more restricted than, as it were, uh, a um, a a person of a religious group that is supposed to be, you know, inferior to the Christian. Well, I, I want to, um, I want to talk about the ways this is different, but yeah, how this exclusion differs um, of the position of women and the position of Jews. And you've written a lot about Jews, so I'm interested in kind of what you 
what you learned, like how, what you were, what you learned well, during this process, and what you're thinking about differently. But really, that question, you know, there's the space difference. Like Jews inhabit different spaces in cities, and women and men live kind of you know, Christian men live shaped by jowl. But what, what, how does this exclusion differ? What's the most salient point I need to understand there? Okay, so I have to just start by saying that there isn't one answer because actually the position of Jews across Europe differs just, you know, there's a sort of path dependency in terms of how they got there. Um, did they arrive early? Did they arrive late? Did they arrive refugees? Were they invited in? So I just say that there is a difference there. But let's take Jews, say, in the places where they were most embedded, where they had very long settlement to give us a sort of better comparator. So those would be some of the cities of the Holy Roman Empire. So that would be like Germany of today and definitely the cities of northern and central uh, Italy and um, actually some of the uh, cities of the Iberian Peninsula. So the groups, Jews and women, are similar in terms of their uh, embeddedness in uh, business life. Um, in most places, the Jews are not separated out. There might be a Jew that we might call the Jew Street, and indeed, in some European cities, you still have the Judengasse or that sort of designation there, because all professions lived in streets. You also get the shoemaker streets, and you get the the all sorts of silversmith streets. Uh, so. So it's because people of the same occupation usually lived together on in, in proximity. So that is why you get the Jew Street, not because they were restricted to living there. That on the whole came later in the 16th century and famously in the Venice ghetto. But so so let's continue this comparison. I think it's a really fruitful one. So um, they live in um, they're they're central to the functioning of the economy of credit, of production, they're part of the landscape, you're used to seeing them around, you know them, your neighbors, uh, they're embedded in that sense. But they also, both groups, suffer from a fatal flaw, which is the case of women, that all theories of medicine and morality and so on aver that women are uh, less in, you know, deficient in, in mind and body. And the Jews, of course, have the, the, the fatal stigma of being somehow associated with the biblical Jews who, by the 13th century, definitely are believed to have been knowing pillars of Christ. Now, uh, so that means that they neither group can be fully integrated as holders of authority. So women can't have authority over men because of these deficiencies, and and Jews can't because of their uh, this fatal flaw of rejecting Christianity. So there were always certain offices that Jews could not hold. There was pushing against it, but uh, but that was still there as a limitation. But they could do a whole lot of things as women could as well. Nonetheless, I think that both Jews and women suffered regularly from uh from from these barriers but it's not just that they're suffering it's also those who rule governors look at them and say but they're totally necessary to city life they're totally natural as part of our city so what do we call these people and it's very interesting that both jews and women when in the later middle ages in the 14th 15th century there are attempts to 
to um, integrate or to allow women to become citizens. This is in order to normalize their economic activity. And certain women who run businesses because they inherited them are allowed, or and who are trading as sole individuals, are allowed to gain uh, civic status or citizenship status, but it's not full citizenship. The same thing with Jews. It's so apparent that they're utterly embedded into the city. So there's a struggle to find a word to call them. And you occasionally see this in documents. So they're called like um, quasi-kives, sort of quasi-citizen or co-citizen or fellow citizen, but not quite full citizen. So this linguistic sort of, these linguistic acrobatics show us that even in the terms of the time, there's clearly a sort of tension and a contradiction as to um, why are they excluded? No, but they have to be excluded. But the arguments of the exclusion are not the usual arguments that are applied in urban life to say, if you're doing something good for the city, come and join us. It is about other types of considerations of a moral, ethical, historical, and patriarchal nature. Now, in the very later Middle Ages and in Europe after the Black Death, when everyone, all rulers, all cities are absolutely desperate for working hands, after all, the population has fallen by between, I don't know, a third and half. It is, we're living through a terrible time ourselves. It is nothing compared to what went on there between 1347 and 1349 across Europe. So when they, um, when that happens, you see again these extraordinary struggles over do we empower? Do we give rights? Do we let those whom we excluded in various ways in the past now fully engage and fully become part of our communities because we need every pair of working hands and every pair of uh, every every functioning individual and the interesting thing is again there's a total struggle on the one hand there are all sorts of uh you know uh, uh speeded up uh procedures for allowing people to become citizens because you need people in the cities and all sorts of wonderful conditions for those settling but on the other hand there is revived and renewed and hard because that's how the anxiety about the situation and the frustration and the fear gets expressed. So it's as if all these communities have these two, they're constantly doing two things. They're thinking sort of what we might call rationally about the needs of their communities. But they are also at the same time freaking out and expressing their uh, uh, anxieties and their fears, uh, whipped up, of course, by opinion uh, shapers like others, uh, in, in ways that we might consider not rational, not conducive, not productive, and actually really cruel to the people at the receiving end. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I feel like I've taken quite enough of your time, and so I want to wrap this up. But one of, um, I'd like to read a paragraph from your first chapter that I, I think is uh, it's a really beautiful demonstration of you as a writer and what you're doing with the cities. So uh, I'm going to start here. 
Cities emerge as processes, unfinished, never fixed, always in flux. They were carefully planned and measured spaces in which habits and routines unfolded in time, with bells, curfews, market days, and festivals, with outdoor sermons and processions and calendars, both civic and religious. The urban space was also dramatically divided, separated into parts, marked by neighborhoods, gates, and barriers. Cathedral jurisdictions carved out precincts with their own building styles and sociability. The city was of parts, parties, and other fundamental ways, too. Cities were faction, gangs, and competition. No city was ever truly at rest. Every city was an assembled process, ever responding to a host of challenges with the endowment, material and conceptual, that was its history and legacy. Diversity in the city was both a challenge and a tool. Unquote. That is so beautiful. Um, And I think really grabs what you're saying. Um. And uh, it's it's such I think I mean you you talk about how you you wanted to do something important and you wanted to do something timely and you wanted to say using history kind of in this way that is ideal right that the historians would really love the idea that by looking at the past we can really help enlighten the future and I think this is a demonstration that you really do that you accomplish that in this book. Thank you. Yeah, it's really wonderful. So. Uh, what are you doing now? What are you working on next? Well, I have to confess that for about a year, I haven't done anything. I mean, most of this year, just transitioning in universities to the online reality and all sorts of other, and, and keeping keeping colleagues, keeping colleagues um, happy. Uh, well, happy. What I mean is content through this difficult uh, um, situation, all of us sort of who are uh, more senior and and in various leadership positions, I think that's taken up most of our time. So, and it's it's also a tremendous pleasure. Don't get me wrong, but it does it does rather um, overwhelm one's life just thinking about you know how to keep PhD students alert and engaged, uh, how to continue thinking of a future of research in our universities, even as we invest most of our energy into uh, making offerings for our students uh, online that will be enticing, that will be encouraging, and, and above all, that will give them the education that they deserve. So in a way, it's um, that has been so extraordinary, o- overwhelming. But I should say, at the same time, research-wise, I may not have read any primary sources in, in, in the last few months and or written anything very much new. But what I have done and thanks to every possible digital platform on, uh, in use, I have sat in on the most extraordinary seminars, both organized by me and my colleagues at Queen Mary, or just sitting in because the link reached me, or someone invited me, or I was invited to speak even as part of a panel. I, and because, of course, at the moment we're living through, and, and of course, the Black Lives Matter and everything that has followed, I have learned, I have been educated by amazing people on issues like race and gender and social justice and everything else that, you know, in a normal course of things, I just wouldn't be there in the place. But now I am virtually. So I feel that I'm dying to get back to an archive, both to have the time and to be able to. But at the same time, I also feel I've been educated i've been educated and when i do get to them i will have better more poignant more timely questions and possibly some tools 
to bring to the job. Mm, that's so that's such an optimistic and uh and 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 you know that's a that's a very glass half full look at this past year i am so glad it has been a productive one for you and uh you are right in that just keeping the ship afloat for this this in 2020 has been quite enough uh so well done you um thank you so much mary rubin for talking to me today this has been wonderful my pleasure. Thank you so much. Um.